Welcome to the Curious Humans podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Miller. Hello, Curious Humans. This is a really unique episode. Michael King has been a mentor and dear friend for nearly five years now. And if it weren't for some of our conversations, I'm honestly not sure that Curious Humans would even exist, and at least not in the form that it does today. I find some of his perspectives and approaches to to meditation and to life in general so refreshing. And my goal for this conversation was to really tease out some of the ideas and quite radical concepts that he shared with me privately over the years. Some of the questions we explored include, what is the case for living life from a place of ease rather than what he describes as over-efforting, which is certainly something that I've wrestled with for a long time. How is our experience of reality shaped by who we are and our beliefs? some common meditation myths and pitfalls that he sees with meditators of varying levels of experience. He, uh, he recommends navigating the landscape of meditation and the vast number of options and, and traditions and approaches that are out there. And finally, he also shares a really, really powerful framework for feeling into and moving through any challenging emotional experience or resistance. Michael is also launching the third iteration of his meditation teacher training early next February, which I was a student in myself two years ago. What I learnt not only profoundly shapes my work as a coach, but it also deepened my practice and my relationship to my own mind and emotional landscape. So if training to become a meditation teacher or deepening your own practice is something that calls to you, I'd absolutely recommend getting in touch with Michael he's generously offering curious humans listeners 200 dollars off the 2022 training just mention curious humans when you reach out and the links to learn more are all in the show notes below all right without further ado i give you this grounding fun and thoughtful conversation with my good friend and mentor michael king Okay, welcome, welcome, Mikey. How are you feeling in three words? How am I feeling in three words? Um, bubbly. Um, I think just because I, oh, that's not three words. I was going to go into a whole sentence about why. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> Look, this is what bubbly does. Um, hot uh-huh. and excited. Awesome. Awesome. Well, um, you might be familiar with the format to some degree, um, but the way that I like to kick off these conversations is to ask, were you exceptionally curious as a child? And if so, could you maybe tell me a story about something that you were curious about? I don't, you know what? I don't know. I, what I would say is I was exceptionally but quietly competitive. Um, I, I was the youngest in my family, two older sisters and, and a mom and 
just a lot of big personalities. And I kind of just, I feel like when I was a kid, I slipped under the radar a lot and just watched the world go by. And I don't know if I was exceptionally curious, but this, I had this in, inner competitive drive that, you know, led me to playing lots of sports and I'd kind of let my wild out in the sporting arena. Mm. Um, but I felt like when I got a little older, like, yeah, I just remember being competitive and hungry to play when I was a kid. But when I got like 10, 12, 14, that's when I started getting a little bit curious um, about the world and, and even started thinking about what am I actually made of and where do I come from and, um, yeah, what's this all about? And, and some, of the, some of the early mysteries that come to mind were when I'd lay in bed, I, my bed was under a window and every time there was a full moon in the middle of the night, right when the full moon was shining in my window, I'd just snap awake. And, um, and I'd lay awake for so long, just getting lost in the, the calmness and the brilliance of the moon. And I don't know what that was or why, or, but I, I used to get really just in that state of awe and just quiet, inner quiet wonder about things. Um, the other time I remember getting really curious was probably also relating to sleep when just before I'd go off to sleep, probably around the age of 12, I started doing this thing where I would fully explore what would I be if I was dead. Mm. Mm. <laughs> and so I remember thinking, well, I wouldn't be in my body. Um, what would I be then? Would I be in my mind? And I'd just go through this thought experiment. No, because I wouldn't be me. And I'd just peel back these layers until eventually I'd just have this kind of inner lived experience of just floating in nothingness. And then next thing I knew, I'd wake up and it was the next morning and go, wow, that was a trip. What was that about? <laughs> what was that about? And I think that's the first time I taught myself to meditate. Mm. Um, but then real curiosity that I can remember came later when I started exploring the mind, body system and emotions and all the stuff that you love as well uh -huh. and having uh, programs and patterns and states of suffering that I dealt with for so long, most of my life fully fall apart and feel the level of freedom I hadn't felt. Mm -hmm. And it made me go, what else am I holding on to? What else is possible? How good can life get? What if I'm wrong about everything? Mm -hmm. And those first experiences of just obliterating what I thought I knew was when I feel like maybe like early twenties is when I felt curiosity really come alive. Mm. Wow. That's powerful. And, and in some ways that's almost like another form of death in itself. It's like a death of the identity structure that we, that we grasp onto. Um, that's yeah. beautiful. And it's something I, as you were saying that I remember for myself also, um, there was a time where I was like eight or nine when I just like, thought so much about death like both the terror of it because the belief that I had was that I just turned in like fell into the void and the the fear and the terror but also the curiosity of like but then like where would I go where would I go and just the the the, the perplexity that I had and the fact that none, none of the adults could really answer this question for me I remember kind of sitting with it a lot um were there any yeah. Were there any stories 
or books or, or movies that you really resonated with when you were younger? <laughs> um, you know what? I, I, I found out not too long ago that I might've been dyslexic mm. and, um, we only, I only figured this out when um, I was at my mum's a few years ago and she kept some emails that I sent her from when I first travelled overseas when I was about 22. And Hannah and I were reading through the emails and the grammar and the spelling was just, it was so bad. Like I didn't even know the difference between like N, uh, K-N-O-W and N-O. And I didn't even know thank you was two words. Like it was so basic. And, um, and I just... I really just did not um, gel with reading or writing all through school. And I, so I love to watch movies, but I didn't really um, yeah, read any stories or have any books that moved me. And, and as I was saying before, a lot of the movies I watched and got really drawn into were more like sporting, um, sporting movies and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I always had this like in, this weird interest towards some of the parables and stories of of Jesus. Not that I um, knew many of them, but I just remember thinking, "This dude sounds pretty cool." <laughs> and I remember some of those things would just make me go, "Huh, I wonder what that's about." Because I was raised in a completely non-religious family, so I had this freedom to explore it without being told what it was about. And I just mm. I remember thinking, "Wow, that's that sounds really really cool." Like I get this dude. Something in me like gets what he's on about. Um, but I read my first book when I was 22 mm. and it was Scar Tissue by, uh, you know, the, mm. uh, what's his name, Anthony, who, Anthony the, Yeah, that's a powerful yeah. book. I, I love that as well. And then, um, I got obsessed with reading from there on in and, and went on to read, you know, so many books and, and improve my English dramatically. And when I was traveling around <laughs> Australia, when I was 23, 24, I carried a dictionary with me and I was determined to, you know, understand <laughs> the English language better. And, you know, when I was reading these books, I just... I learned a whole array of new words and um, even went on to write a book. So, you know, that was a big, like, stick it up the English teachers. Yeah. <laughs> I remember I was at my book launch just with this huge fuck you to the school going, everything's possible. If I can write a book, <laughs> then, mate, I could do anything. <laughs> Love that. Yeah. Um, and from from there, and this is actually part of your story that I'm not too familiar with, but... Uh, from traveling around Australia and, and launching a book and things, what was the transition into your time in India and your time kind of traveling in, in Asia? What's the, mm. what's the backstory there? When I, when I first traveled to Europe, I, I traveled a lot, but I also worked a lot. And um, I worked on the, the super yachts over there. So I was really fortunate to do like a year's solid work and make a good amount of coin, which enabled me to, I'm so grateful for that because it enabled me to save enough money that with just a little bit of work here and there, I basically adventured outwardly and inwardly for five or six years Mm. without work, just a pure soul mission for that amount of time. Mm. And so a big part of that was traveling around Australia. And then after that trip, I, I kind of hung out for a little while and did a few little projects. A friend of mine and I opened up a market store where we serve soup to people just by donation, you know, we just had this desire to serve food and being a chef, it was a real joy to cook in a completely non-pressure situation for people. And I did a few of projects by that, but like that. And at some point I just had a, um, 
yeah, I'm going to go to India. And I think that came from when I was traveling around Australia and I read autobiography of a yogi. And I just had this thought, I've got to go to this, this like uh, spiritual Mecca, this mm. kind of heartbeat of the yogic meditative philosophy and mm. see what it's all about. Mm-hmm. And so after traveling around Australia, um, yeah, I just I took off with my best mate and we spent a bunch of time in Sri Lanka, a bunch of time in India, a bunch of time in Nepal, a bunch of time in India again, in Sri Lanka again, and just had this well-rounded trip where, yeah, it was, it was close to a year all up and um, had some wild experiences for sure. Mm. Mm. Beautiful. Well, um, this morning I was, uh, well, firstly, I realized that we started kind of working together uh, back in 2017. So I guess like five years ago now. Um, and at the time I was uh, just obsessed with taking notes for everything. And so I actually have some pretty detailed notes that you probably remember from uh, like our early mentoring sessions together. I remember, I think I came to you with like 10 printed pages of like, (laughs) here's what's going on in my life. I remember you'd tag me in your notes and go, I took a few notes after our session. I'd be like, I I actually can't read all that. (laughs) Well, um, it's, it's, it's handy that I I did because I I went through some of these notes this morning. Um, and yeah, I was just like reflecting on how transformative some of our conversations were um, back back then. And I feel like you have a just a really unique perspective on on life and um, and also it's obviously the role of meditation as well. So I thought what we could do for this is I'll share some of the some of what really resonated with me at the time. And then maybe we can kind of unpack that together for, for listeners. Oh, that sounds so fun. Sound fun? Yeah. Okay. This is like, great. you'll have a, it's like brainstorming with a past version of yourself. Wow. <laughs> um, so the first, yeah, the first thing that I like double, triple highlighted was, um, it was this note on, on reality filters. And these, these are your words. <laughs> we don't ever see reality. We're seeing what is what we've been conditioned and programmed to see. There are so many filters. The real world goes through seven synapses in the brain before we receive the imagery. Aspects are deleted, distorted, and generalized to turn what we're seeing into story. Could mm. you could you speak to that? Kind of what what do you think you meant by that? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Wow, great. So um every second. Um, our senses are receiving around about 2 million bits of information. Um, I don't know how they measure this shit. (laughs) (laughs) 2 million bits of information coming in every second through the sense sense windows, sense doors. Mm -hmm. And what we have the capacity to make sense of or comprehend or contextualize and experience is about 134 bits of that 2 million bits. So I haven't, I don't know what it exactly is as a percentage, but it's something like 0.01, something like that percent of available reality is what we experience in any given moment. So imagine there's this like huge spectrum of possible experience in any given moment, but of that huge spectrum of possible experience, what, 0.01% am I attuned to and experiencing. Mm. I'm having the experience of whatever my current state of being is, whatever I'm conditioned to experience. 
So I'm not seeing it as it is. I'm seeing it really as I am. Mm. And the real work with meditation and all these different practices and same as what you're doing with the breathwork training and things like that is twofold. One of them is to pull apart the way we currently perceive so we can have a more active role in choosing how I would like to see and experience life. Mm-hmm. And the second one is, can I expand the 134 bits so I can take in more information and have a more full, vivid experience of reality? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these, these practices that we all do and all love, that one of the key purposes is just to clean the window the lens of perception. So I might still only be seeing not everything that's available, but what I'm perceiving is in alignment with the truth itself. It's in alignment with the nature of reality. Mm. Yeah. Beautiful. It, um, that reminds me of, I think in one of his books, I think it was, it's Aldous Huxley. He talks about in the doors of perception that when he first took masculine, he felt like he went from, experiencing 0.02% to like 0.1% and it just like radically opened up the doors of what he was able to perceive um and it does seem I, like sure okay I was just I just got excited because I was gonna say I, I know for me there's such a difference between um if I'm existing in a certain state where I'm a little bit busy or distracted or fully engaged being a dad and a husband or cooking meal for the family or whatever it might be, uh, life, you, I can feel it's that 0.01% where it's not necessarily bad, but there's the, the perimeters of reality have moved yep. in a little bit. Yep. And then there's other experiences where I've been sometimes just on a very ordinary day, but let's, let's go to the extreme and say where I've been, out on an adventure in the bush by myself for an extended period of time, living under the stars, cooking on the fire, Mm. where the ability to perceive life opens up to such a degree that if someone else had that experience, they'd think they were tripping sacks. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But but for some reason, because it's a, it's a progressive calm experience. It's Mm. just so in that moment, it makes perfect sense. And it's like, of course I can see that. Of course that's happening. Mm. Of course, I can feel the essence of that particular thing in nature. Of course, I yeah. can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I love that, and it, it reminds me of what you just said around um, when you were younger, kind of staring up at the moon and like feeling that same sense of expansiveness from kind of witnessing the moon. And I feel like as children, we ha- it's almost like we have wider kind of windows of of awareness or attention. And as we get older, I think the our experiences, our conditioning almost create these these layers or these extra filters on top of what's there. And maybe part of this work is also um, noticing these filters that have been put there. And, and as you said, kind of polishing the polishing the glass to some degree. Yeah. And I think we we always have we always have um, filters like we can't as part of the human experience for sure. Mm-hmm. But can the filters be in alignment with the deeper nature of reality? So, so, so life's not so basic, good, um, benevolent, balanced life isn't coming through my filters and getting distorted so that I have a negative perception of, and I, of this moment need to defend myself or react or protect myself or something like that. Um, I might still have filters that life moves through, but can the filters I have in place 
reflect the deeper nature of reality so that there's not as much distortion. So for example, we all have beliefs in our mind and the belief can be something that directly opposes reality. It can be something that causes constriction and puts us in a state of fight and flight unnecessarily, or the belief could be something that is supportive of and reflective of the deeper truth of life. It's still a belief. It's not reality and truth itself, but it might reflect the deeper nature of life and therefore it's supportive and conducive to having an embodied experience of, um, yeah, the deeper nature of life. Mm, beautiful. Well, that's, um, that's a really nice kind of segue to the second thing that I highlighted, which is an example of, of I think one of the beliefs that I held that I was really, I think, struggling with when I first started working with you. And it was on this idea of like over efforting and, you know, something that I, I'm still prone to on occasion. And the, the thing that I highlighted was imagine if instead of picking the fight to prove your worthiness, you skipped the ending and feel a sense of enoughness ahead of time. The world mm. doesn't actually need you. When this realization hits, then you move into the mode of okay, so why do I do this? Because I can. From that place, life shifts into a continuum of experience for the joy of it. So I, I absolutely love this. And I'd love for you to kind of expand on, I, I think of it as like changing the fuel tank from, from needing to prove ourselves to moving into more ease and joy. Mm. Doesn't it just feel relaxing? Yeah, it feels great. <laughs> I know. That's, for me, that's enough said. You know, like it just feels like, ah, what am I doing? Hmm. Like in, in over-efforting. It's, it's really interesting too that the way I think about effort is if we really look at why we effort, because it's such a huge thing for people in our world and industry right now, like the people that are really trying to make a business work or, um, trying to get ahead or, you know, trying to get themselves out there. If we look at why we effort, if we really look, we're trying to make life more effortless. That's the only reason we would effort. I'm doing this thing because I want to get to a point where things are better, where I feel better, where things flow more of these, where I have more money, where I'm applying the effort so I can get to a point where it's more effortless. And so, I see so many people who don't realize that and they're just applying more effort and applying more effort and applying more effort and applying more effort and applying more effort. And, more effort and it just becomes an endless stream of effort to no end. Mm -hmm. And so the way I think about effort is what's the biggest bang for the buck? Mm. What's conscious effort. And for me, the conscious effort is always, um, okay, I'm going to apply the effort to find alignment of mind and emotion and body to truly drop in and connect. I'm going to apply the effort to sit down and journal out my thoughts. I'm going to apply the effort to sit down and uh, do some breath work and meditation, because if I put my effort there, then I know everything else will flow effortlessly from that inwardly connected place. Mm. When I'm aligned, when I'm on fire, things happen effortlessly. It might still be doing hard work, but it's, there's an effortlessness and a grace to it. So how do I connect with that stream of grace? That's where my effort should be applied. Then everything else will flow effortlessly from there. Mm. 
But if we have these beliefs in place that are like, I have to do the thing and I have to achieve it to be good enough and I have to prove my worth. And here's the biggest one in our society. Oh my God, I just, I, there's something I have to do in order to be worthy enough to get the paycheck. There's something I have to achieve in order to be worthy enough to get the high paying client or the amount of clients. Mm -hmm. Mm. There's, you know, the, 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 the hip, the social hypnosis Mm. is set up so that we believe, um, generally speaking, we believe that I have to overcome hurdles and conflicts and hardship to get to the point where I've earned my success. Mm-hmm. So a lot of entrepreneurs and business startups go out deliberately, unconsciously creating struggles for themselves to feel the uh, joy of overcoming it, to then feel worthy of putting a price tag on something or, um, you know, letting themselves feel worthy of getting enough clients or putting themselves out there because I've overcome that thing. And my greatest joy is reminding people that you don't actually have to suffer mm-hmm. to the degree that you might think you do. You don't actually have to go through all the hardship. We've got all these in society, these statues and monuments that are all de- dedicated to people who have overcome the biggest obstacles in life. And so we see, okay, people get rewarded for and praised for their struggles and hardships that they've lived through. Mm. So we're like, oh, where's mine? I better create something. I better look busy. I better stress a lot so everyone thinks I'm really busy. Um, yeah, but it's unnecessary. Mm. So it's fun to pick apart those beliefs and, and just go, what would I do just for the frigging joy of it? Yeah. What would I do just for the joy of it? Just because I can. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's such a it's it's honestly such a radical concept. And I like the word self-hypnosis because it, it does feel like at times that is something almost it's almost unquestioned in in large aspects or large areas of society. Um could could you maybe even share an example of, of what you think the journey for someone, let's say a listener, let's say they let's say they have their own company what might the journey be like from you know hearing you say that to actually kind of embodying that on a daily basis so that they're kind of waking up and they're because it's a pretty radical thing to say only apply effort to create more internal stability like there will be a lot of pushback from that yeah good because people people are like you know i have responsibilities i have a kid to look after i have employees like don't tell me not to effort because that's that's bullshit like how do you yeah how do you how do you work with that yeah yeah good i love the pushback people love to fight <laughs> for their limitations <laughs> uh a lack of effort doesn't mean inaction it just means the way that you do the action where is the action springing forth from mm-hmm. So just a minute ago when we talked about um, how we experience not reality, but we have we experience whoever we are being. So if we're approaching life from this vantage point of I'm not enough, I'm not worthy, I have to struggle to make money, 
oh, it's there's we're in a really tough time financially, globally. I'm going to have to apply myself extra hard. Whatever foundation I'm coming from, I'm going to see and experience that world and get more of that. That's what I'm going to draw forth from this large tapestry called reality. I'm going to elicit that from this large tapestry and create that experience for myself. That's the power of my mind. So I'm not saying that we should be inactive or not have to do anything. In fact, I think we're human beings. We're here to do. That's the greatest joy to extend and express our heart into action. There's nothing better than that. But what would it be like if I was to first question those fundamental um, beliefs and question who am I being? How do I genuinely feel within the framework of my body? And what's the background story in my mind that's pushing me into action? Mm-hmm. A, great, a great way to do it, a great way to do it is by looking at kind of um, the meditative traditions, the yogic traditions, psychology 101. If I find myself in a habit, any habit of all, let's use over-efforting, and I'm recognizing that I'm constantly stressed about not enoughness, like there's a, some kind of lack mentality going on. And I, so I jump into big action and exhaust, even if I get the money I want or the, whatever it is, I find myself exhausted. Mm-hmm. And then I um, have to rest. But then because I had to rest and take time away from work, I have to get up and do it all again. So maybe there's a habit going on. So anytime there's a habit, what we can pause and look at is what's the desire behind my habit, the desire or the unmet need. Mm -hmm. And so if someone is um, really over-efforting to have to strive and do all the big work and it's causing a huge stress on their system, what's the desire behind the action? What's the unmet need? So if that was you in that situation back all those years ago, what do you reckon the desire behind the effort would be? I'd say a combination of, like, let's use me in, in the kind of startup mode was to, ha- to have an impact was, was what I would have said at the time. And I think underneath that would have been a desire to be to be seen and recognized and appreciated for my contributions. Right. Perfect. To be seen, to be recognized. And there's probably even a little bit of to be safe in a way, like for a lot of people, whether it's like financial um, support for the people I care about or whether it's to know that I'm going to be looked after or totally. but sometimes there's even a few layers, like for example, um, yeah, the, these questions work really well in relationships too when people have a habit of sabotaging their relationship and, you know, maybe things are going really good, really good, really good, really good, and all of a sudden they subconsciously fuck it up. And they're like, why do I keep doing this? And we see there's a habit. What's the desire behind the habit? And on the surface it might be like, oh, they, it's to be free from um, the control that that partner was attempting to put on me once we got too close. But if you really start to look, the desire was to, probably similar, like be safe and 
to be comfortable and to protect the heart from mm-hmm. being too exposed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's often a few desires to, to pull apart, like you just said. So mm. um, yeah, to be seen as a, a, a really great one for sure. And to be recognized for the impact. Mm. So once we recognize what I'm trying to achieve, what I'm trying to gain from uh, doing this particular work, we can take another step further um, and a lot of the time, actually all the time, desires are born from an experience or experiences in life where the thing we're desiring was absent. So there might have been times in, in your life, whether it be school or when you're really young or even early 20s, I don't know where, um, the desire was born within you to be seen, to be recognized, to um, put yourself out there and to be enough or worthy or whatever it might be. Um, so behind the desire, there's this, we call it a samskara, which is an imprint of a time when that need was not met. Um, so it's going to be different for everyone who asks themselves these questions. Okay, here's my habit. Here's my desire. Here's my samskara. When in my life was this need not met? When was this desire launched within me to be seen? And but just by asking that question, when was this desire launched within me? It takes us on a little mental journey to go, okay, when have I experienced not being seen? And um, I, we're just kind of using you as an example, even if we, we're kind of half digging up the past. Mm-hmm. Um, could, could you imagine where that, where that would have been if you had something like that? Um, yeah, I think probably at school to some degree and before that probably at home kind of by by my parents yeah and so the the work if if we were doing this for real now would be to go in and and just sit with the feelings around that Mm -hmm. whatever memory comes up and just creating the space to just be with the feeling of not being seen um hanging it out to air and breathing into it and relaxing and going, huh, look at the desire and look at my need to chase after the desire and look at the habit loop it's creating. Look at the effort it's pushing me after. Look at everything that comes just from this. Mm-hmm. Let me just actually relax into this and go, I am actually okay to coexist with not being seen. Right now, even if I feel uncomfortable or I feel a little bit of sadness or I feel a little bit of turmoil, if I feel frustration, it's okay. I don't have to do anything right now. I can just feel. Mm. And that foundation of acceptance and surrender and non-resistance towards something that we would have been resisting our entire life. A foundation of non-resistance opens a portal to move even beneath or beyond the samskara. Mm. So how do we do that? 
if we were using this example of you at school not being seen and there's certain feelings in your body associated with that and mental movies playing out, just by being really aware of those things, there starts to be some space between you as the awareness who's watching the movies in the mind and the feelings move and dance within your body. There starts to be a bit of space between you and that thing. And just to rest back into the space of awareness and inquire, who am I as the witness? Or what does it feel like to be me as the witness of whatever's moving through my mind and body? Mm. And if you were to rest back as the witness, like how would that feel? How would that feel for you? It would be a sense of, of okayness and a sense of just like, ah. mm. yeah. yeah, a sense of, sense of it's all okay. Yeah. And that's always the case. Some people say peace. Some people say calm. Some people say acceptance. Some people say, I just, I feel my heart. Some people say I have clarity. And so then to establish yourself in a sense of being, the work then becomes to just bring this gentle, like you've got to attend a gift, bring it back to the surface and go, whoa, let me see life not through that whole telescopic lens of samskara desire into habitual action, but let me see life through this tender, open, innocent eyes of presence. Mm -hmm. From there, you know, life knows you. Life is fucking intelligent. Life knows everything you want. Life knows the absolute best most effective and efficient path to get you to everything you want, 100%. Now you're connected to life. You're with life. You're present. You're available. And so the natural impulse comes as a feeling of delight to move towards the things that you desire and the things that you want. I feel delight to take this next step. And I'm applying, quote, unquote, effort, but it somehow feels effortless, like I'm inspired to act. I'm not doing it because I need to, because the world needs me, because I need the money, because that's a struggle, because I overcome the hardship. I'm doing it because there's a tickle in my heart that says this next step feels beautiful and wonderful and I'm excited to take it. And that's the encouragement from the nature of life. It's how nature communicates with us mm -hmm. to move towards the things that we've already asked for with a sense of ease, mm -hmm. with a sense of ease. So the work becomes, let me apply the effort in whatever way I know and whatever way I have best access to, to reconnect with this beautiful state of being on a daily basis. So when I open my eyes and move into the world, I'm acting from, I'm emerging from a place of inner connection. Mm. Mm. So that's a long answer to your question. It's a, be <laughs> it's a beautiful answer. Um, and, I, and I think, I mean, there's, I had a lot of reflections during that as well, but um, I think the longer that you, from my experience, the longer that you spend in that place, the clearer it becomes when you then go back into, I call it like the forgetting, when you go back into the story, when you go back into the sense of scarcity or the feeling of, of lack of safety. Um, and something I've been exploring with, with breath work as well is, is it's interesting how from people's breathing patterns, you can kind of see how 
when people start to downshift into feeling into like the parasympathetic the rest the relaxation phase how some people's bodies and nervous systems literally don't let them go there because they have this mm -hmm. feeling of, of a lack of safety and the work then really becomes helping them to create the safety for themselves or having other people around to co-regulate with so their nervous systems can feel safe enough to relax to actually yeah. soften into that place of of ease that you beautifully spoke about um it's so interesting isn't it mm -hmm. i i had a lady at a meditation workshop once and um i was talking just a little bit about safety in the beginning and 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 she said why did she like got a little furrow in her brow and like a, <laughs> got a bit on a little a little bit wound up and she said why do meditation and yoga teachers always talk about feeling safe and being safe like i just don't get it and yeah. i just gave her a little, little rant about similar to what you're saying here and yeah saying that safety is important in order for us to actually let go and before we actually do any emotional and psychological processing we have to feel safe first yeah. blah 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 and she's like oh well you know i feel safe i don't know why everyone's always on about it and then you know the next minute this migraine we're talking about safety the next minute this migraine comes in she has to leave the workshop oh, and I'm like you know that's the body just going no we're not ready we're not ready yeah yeah, yeah. And, and from people that i've seen as well it's so the word safety they kind of they think they get it intellectually but then when in breath work or, or some other practice they actually or in, in breathing when the breath goes kind of deep into the pelvis and there's that real like yeah. like there's a deep kind of sigh and an exhale it's like oh I, I feel it like you feel that um the kind of somatic sensation of safety and I think that's yeah what a lot of people struggle to access on a regular basis and certainly not um all the time so th this is this is a really nice kind of th the next topic that i wanted to talk about was um was emotional fluidity which you've kind of just spoken to in, in a really beautiful way but what i'm what might be interesting to talk about more is the relationship between the kind of like the productivity obsession that is quite common in our culture and resisting certain emotional states and you kind of talked just spoken to this already but is there anything else to add around that connection between our desire to be useful all the time and the resistance to feeling certain emotions? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? We we think it's so similar to what we were just talking about that we think anger, frustration, resentment, sadness, fear are obstacles to the work I have to get done. Mm -hmm. So I wish they'd piss off because I've got money to make. <laughs> I've got a contract to sign. I've got a chick to score. <laughs> Whatever, fill in the blank. Um, I've got fun to have. What a frigging hindrance. Go away. Just push it down. So that's a that's an obstacle. Like that's go away. I'm going to get on with being awesome. But the funny thing is that, um, you know, we're talking about who we are being is what creates our experience of life. We're not seeing reality. We're seeing who we are. It's interesting to, and I'm sure you and your listeners know this, but only five percent of the mind is conscious, and ninety five percent of the mind is subconscious, and 
we are creating our experience of reality or our sense of self now, not only from the 5%, but from all of it. So we go, I'm going to push these emotions away and deal with them later and just get on with this thing that I have to do because that's a bloody hindrance or that's an annoyance or go away. But we're creating our experience of life from the totality of our mind, not just the little ideal bit of the mind that says, I'm going to have this kind of day. You know, and this is why we get people who do affirmations and set intentions without addressing any of the real stuff that's going on. And they're wondering why affirmations don't work or intention setting isn't an amazing tool because they're not doing the work to really actually go into what's in the way of that thing naturally unfolding. So I think that's what happens a lot. People are like, um, even people turn to the spiritual path as a misguided attempt to avoid suffering. Okay. I feel sad. I've got resentment. Especially the case. Yeah. (laughs) Especially. Yes. I know what I'll do. I'll go to Ubud or India or whatever. And, uh, you know, find all these beautiful methods so I can just be in happiness and, um, escape the suffering. And then you get there to an actual guide or an actual teacher who sits you down and goes, um, what did you think you're coming for? Get the fuck in there and feel that. <laughs> now, that's what that's the work. That's yeah, yeah. the work. Yeah, that's the work. So, if I want to feel tremendous relief and ease naturally in who and what I am, then the greatest work I can do is actually and genuinely go inside and look at who am I being what energy is alive within me now and how can I work with that how can I work with that Mm. I think I can't remember your question exactly even at the start of this but you said how I can be more useful to myself and others right the most useful if 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 we're trying to be useful by suppressing all of our shit because we have to show, we think we have to show up in a certain way, we're being useless. If you want to know what useful is, connect with your fucking soul and bring that shit to the table and watch the magic unfold. Hmm. You change lives without saying a word. How do you connect with your soul? Emotions are the gateway to the soul. They're not the obstacle, they're the gateway. Hmm. I feel, I soften, I open. I feel, I soften, I open. I accept all. I welcome all. I'm inclusive of all. Let me soft and transcend, soften and transcend, soften and transcend. Mm. Ah, once again, I've arrived at the state of being. Let me bring being into the world. That's the most useful I can be. Mm. Being, it's not my being and your being, it's being. We're different waves on the same big old pond of ocean. So if I want to know what's useful for you, if I want to act in a way that's useful for you, the best thing I can do is connect with being because then being, if I'm connected to being, being communicates to me and through me what's in the best interest of the people I'm in exact proximity with. The need of the moment. You become spontaneously aware of it. This is what we mean in meditation by the word kriya, spontaneous right action inspired by the intelligence of life that we all have access to full stop spontaneous right action you want to be useful oh 
the most useful thing you can do is suffer a little bit with <laughs> 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 your own emotions and you know deal with the deal with a half an hour of crying to to express and let go of that so you can be available to the moment mm. yeah mm. as i'm sitting here i'm reminiscing on on our conversations and, and missing yeah missing the spontaneous wisdom that seems to erupt from <laughs> from you <laughs> it's, it's always fun beautifully put um so i i also asked kelly um what questions she might have for you and she's kind of also going down the meditation path herself at the moment oh, and great. what she what she what she mentioned was uh she said what's up with all of these different modalities um she she was like is there some like genuine innovation happening here she was like there's tm there's ziva there's zen there's so many approaches out there and what she was curious about and i think this is a great question is are there any meaningful differences between these practices and how does someone who is just like starting out on this path navigate that well that's such a great question such a great question ah <sighs> Yeah, it's, it's interesting when we um, use the blanket word meditation or the blanket word mindfulness um, because there are so many different traditions mm. behind it because it's such an old, it couldn't be any other way just because of how much of an old practice it is. Um, there, are, there are different philosophical or, or small philosophical differences between a lot of the practices, but they're just different paths up the, the same mountain. And a lot of them come from the same origin, which is um, kind of pre-Vedic India, you know, anywhere from 3,000 to 5,000 years ago. Even Buddhism and Zen is an expression of the Vedantic texts which come out of the Vedas. So it's, it, it's definitely challenging to navigate for a beginner, where do I start? I think we naturally resonate with whoever can serve us best in for the next step of our own evolution. So, you know, talking about um, the feeling of delight internally being used as a kind of life guidance we'll, we'll naturally get a sense when we explore okay here's a modality of meditation with this particular teacher how do i feel when i look at them and sense their energy and hear about what they're teaching versus how do i feel when i look and sense and connect with this particular teacher or modality method methodology and when there is so much out there available, that's, that's the best way to navigate it, really. And then if we feel compelled, like I feel there's something in me that wants to look at this more, explore this more, move down this path, then, yeah, contact the teacher and, and dig in, give it a good crack. And then at some stage, um, there might be a little bit of friction inside that's encouraging us to move towards something slightly different. Mm -hmm. Like I think if you you look at your own path and your own evolution 
it's been similar with the teachers and mentors you've attracted and they come into your life for a little while. And then there's the beautiful natural energy that comes and liberates the bondage of that relationship. And then you go on to create a new connection with another teacher and that'll happen again. And all the while you're developing your own inner resourcefulness to eventually be your ever increasingly uh, more stable inner leader and teacher. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't, yeah, I don't actually know how to answer the, the question more succinctly than that, but. Yeah, what would you say? Because you've had a lot of different mentors and teachers throughout your meditative mm. career. So yeah, I'd, I'd be curious to know what you how you would answer it. Yeah, I, I'd say something. I'd say something similar. But I think I begun almost like a kind of really hungry kid in like an all you can eat buffet. I was like trying to <laughs> like taste all of these different styles or these different approaches. Um, and, and I think that we all we do have different dispositions and so therefore are naturally more drawn to certain practices compared to others. Um, I think, for example, people who have quite active minds or quite strong intellects might be more drawn to a more contemplative, maybe Zen kind of Cohen practice or, or the, yeah. the kind of the, the question of like, who am I? And just like using the mind to overcome the mind. Um, yeah. And then I think more recently I've become really interested in some of the Kriya practices and kind of working with working with energy, working with um, that kind of, I guess, more, more tantric path. Um, but I don't think that would have been accessible to me like five or six years ago. I think it's taken time for that to um, almost open up in some way. Mm. Um, yeah, but it, it, is a, it is a really interesting question. And like you say, they are all kind of paths up the same mountain. And, and I think there's also, like, I could also imagine a case where someone is just like in that endlessly trying different things but don't commit to one path long enough to actually yeah. see any kind of meaningful progress um, yeah like that that was the beauty of, of vipassana for me because it, it forced me to sit for 10 days in silence yeah. and do the same thing and uh yeah i i wonder i mean I, I feel like i could have done almost any type of meditation practice but if i'd done it with that intensity in that environment something probably would have happened yeah yeah i was the same with vipassana and i yeah i practiced did the vipassana technique for you know two hours a day um for years Mm. and um and it was really good just to dig into something and it it gave me the the really great foundation to be able to explore other techniques from and and you know these days i what i'm mostly practice and teachers teachings based upon vedanta and the reason i like it is because it's a little bit more integrative and holistic as opposed to something like um a Vipassana or a TM or a Vedic meditation where techniques, the technique, and mm-hmm. here's the guidelines and you do it no matter what in this yeah. way, stop. Yeah. Whereas uh, Vedanta correlates with pranayama, yoga and Ayurveda and lifestyle and all of these things to look at the wholeness of the person yeah. and go with the wisdom and skills I have as a teacher, what's the best practice for you now? Mm-hmm. And that's not your practice forever because that will evolve and what's the best practice for you now? What's the best practice for you now? What's the best practice for you now? Um, the practice evolves as the um, practitioner evolves. And so I kind of like that little puzzle piece of putting a practice with a person. Mm. And I find it so much more effective because, yeah. you know, I've been in front of 60, um, uh, 17 to 25 year olds in a, a professional football club 
blokes teaching them. They, the practice for them is very, very different to the advanced yogi that I taught one-on-one the week before, for example. Totally. Yeah. And so there's an adaptability that comes with Vedanta where there's no set technique for all. And I real, that's what I really, really love. And that's what I train people in to kind of look at what's going on for the person and um, yeah, adapt the practice based upon really, really simple principles so it can fit in with their, their life and what's going on for them. Mm. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that about Vipassana. Um, I actually just applied to one in, in Bali. There's a center opened and they, they in, in their email, they was like they were like, you have to eat this food. You can't practice yoga. There's like, you, you can't have done any other spiritual practices apart from this in the last two years. And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> it's very, it's very um, I, I think it's effective, but I, I do feel like there is a bit of dogma there to some degree. Um, but yeah. yeah, so so what, what kind of um, meditation did you or might you recommend to the like 17 to 25 year olds? And, and I say that knowing that a number of listeners probably like realize that meditation is like quote unquote good for them, but they yeah. might struggle to sit for more than 10 minutes at a time. They might have demanding jobs. They might have kids. What is the kind of practice that you would like almost prescribe or recommend to someone in that kind of situation. Yeah. Amazing. The first thing uh, would be normally when we're designing a meditation for an individual and, and you know, this well and well and good, we divide the practice into three segments and especially for someone who's of that age bracket and lifestyle, breaking it into segments, um, keeps them present enough and engaged enough with the technique that they can be on the front foot with the moment and not getting too distracted or drifted away um, with the madness of the puppy mind. So the three sections of the meditation we break it into would be firstly some breath work to promote balance of the nervous system because the breath always leads the mind. But typically, super generally speaking, in this day and age, um, for, for people that are in that way line of work, it would be longer exhales and exhale suspensions to promote calmness and ease to really bring the mind to a place of steadiness and just presence. From there, um, sometimes something like a concentration technique might be too difficult or even rigid. So I'm just speaking super generally here, but what can actually be beneficial for um, really busy minds or minds that have some disturbances, not just busy, but some, some, some disturbances going on is to ta- actually take awareness out of the mind, give the mind a break. So how do you do that? Use the senses as an opening into presence. So if I'm trying to sort out all this, there's too much going on. It's just a mess. So let me go out here. Ah, what can I hear? the hum of the air conditioner. First, it starts with naming and labeling different sounds. And then we just be with sound. And notice that when sound moves through the ears, 
we want to either get a picture in the mind of what it could be that sound, or we start to have a bit of a dialogue about it. And then when we do that, just come back to the sound. What's it like to just listen? What's it like to really listen? And notice that the moment we start to think about the sound, we're no longer with the sound. That sound's passed and a new one's there or a new expression of the same sound. So how do I just from moment to moment be with the sound? And say I'm out of my own head, but I'm present. I'm attentive. And then from sound, I might move to the sensations on my body. If there's like a brute, maybe I can feel a gentle breeze on my right cheek, but not on my left because the wind's blowing this way. Or maybe there's a, a tingling in my hands or a, I can feel my belly pressing into my shirt and drawing away from the shirt so it's the same with a sense of feeling or sense of touch i'm not in my head but i'm fully present and just getting out of the head like that and being with the senses can then enable us to then land home and recognize well the fire of my mind is calmer because i temporarily just stop throwing logs on it when I don't give any attention to the fire, it burns out eventually. And then from there, so we call that practice pratyahara, or more specifically, Indraya pratyahara, which just means um, working with the senses. And then from there, now that the mind is calm, we can ask some beautiful questions. Now that I'm connected and present, What's my intention for the day? If I was to bring my heart to life, what would that look and feel like? You know, how do I want to walk through the world on this day? Now that I'm really still and really calm, I have a, I'm connected with a creative capacity. So a few moments of just, yeah, I have a say in how I move through the world. It's not accidental. It's not happenstance. I can be the source of what I want. In other words, if I want fun, if I want playfulness, if I want kindness, if I want whatever I want, I can be the source of that. So a few moments to just go, let me be the source of what I would like to experience today. Let me have the joy of causing another to feel that. So this really, really simple practice of some breath work, what would I normally do? For a beginner, say, set your timer for 15 minutes with a three interval timers, five, 10, 15. Five minutes of breath work, five minutes of just getting present with the senses and five minutes of just who do I want to be? How do I want to move through the world? And a more specific question I really like is if I was to bring the, the truth and beauty of my heart to life, what would that feel or look like? Mm, beautiful um it's funny as you were talking about the the senses it started raining here and there's now quite <laughs> beautiful la, la, yeah loud sound of rain in the background um perfectly timed <laughs> I see. um yeah i absolutely love that um another question that i think might be interesting to explore is what do you see as being some of the some of the common maybe more mainstream misconceptions or myths around meditation and meditation practice, which can be obstacles for people on their, on their journeys. 
There's a lot. <laughs> There's really obvious ones, like I have to sit in a certain position. The only thing I often say is if your spine is upright, uh, upright and erect, it, it um, communicates a message to your brain that it's time to pay attention. So it helps to sit with an upright spine and, and avoid laying down because sleep is just too tempting, especially when people are first starting. They're not yet used to being that relaxed and awake. There's an anchor between deep relaxation and sleep that they've established their whole life. And so as soon as the body system starts to shut down and the brainwave activity reduces to that degree, their subconscious mind goes, must be time for sleep. <laughs> so it takes a while to retrain that. So if you're laying down, it, it makes it really difficult. So sitting up is a good one, but you don't have to sit in any particular position. Another one would be that um, labeling is always a bad thing. So quite often when we talk to fellow meditators and things like that, it's always don't label it. Just let it be. Don't label it. Don't name it. Don't give it any. Uh, have you heard that? Like you kind of know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, sometimes labeling is really effective and it's been uh, under certain conditions when people have an afflicted mind or disturbed or disturbed or a busy mind, this technique of labeling or naming has been shown and proven to be really effective because if we give something a one word, clear, concise label, it takes us out of the story of it and to the seat of the witness of it. So let's just say some big emotion arose and I wasn't even aware of the emotion because I was just in the head of what they did. And I remember it and maybe I should have said this or they shouldn't have done that. And all of a sudden I remember, ah, labeling. It just, my awareness clicks back into gear and I go, ah, anger. And that's it. No more story, just anger. Look at anger. Feel anger. Notice anger. All of a sudden there's space between me as the witness and anger. And I'm interested. I have, a, I now, I am, I am not anger. I have a relationship with anger. What's my relationship with anger? See, this gets really interesting. What's my relationship with anger? Is my relationship, I shouldn't feel it? Is my relationship is, they shouldn't have made me feel this way? Is my relationship, when's it going to go away? It doesn't feel comfortable. We can change our relationship and set up a foundation of an inner atmosphere of inclusivity and kindness. What would that look like? Hello, anger. Would you like a cup of tea? <laughs> Here's a biscuit. You're welcome here. Look at the way you move through my body. You're powerful. Look at the heat you bring to my mind. Whoa, how could I channel that for good? Anyway, I don't have to worry about that now. I just want to say you're welcome here. And I have all the time and space for you. So labeling in the right situations can be really helpful. Maybe I'm just feeling dull or even if I'm feeling just distracted rather than trying to fight the distraction or push against it or when's it going to end or I've got to concentrate, distracted. It just snaps us out of the experience. So 
in general, it's like, yeah, we don't want to label things and we don't want to name things. Everything just is as it is. And, you know, all those wonderful things we talk about in meditation, but every now and again, it's a really helpful tool to actually label something. The third myth is a little further down the path. And this is a huge one too, that Samadhi is an out of reach experience that's reserved for austere yogis in saffron robes in caves sitting in lotus position. So most people who come to a meditation teacher training, when we talk about Samadhi and what it actually is, they say, oh, I've experienced that. There are different levels of Samadhi or different um, experiences of Samadhi varying in their the way that they're sustained. But so many of us have had beautiful moments where we feel deeply connected and unified with ourself and the space around us, where we feel a sense of dissolution of egoic consciousness, even if temporary. So having moments of samadhi is very accessible and often experienced by even ordinary people that don't meditate. Once we start to notice, well, this is possible for me, and we dip our toes in a little more and become more curious about it, we can start to look at sustainable ways in which we can include more of that um, experience into our very ordinary life. So it's not reserved for um, when I do a huge process, or it's not reserved for when I take halluc hallu um, hall <laughs> some kind of trip, you know, <laughs> it's a tongue twister. <laughs> or it's not reserved for when I get so lost in a movie that I, I temporarily forget about myself and all of my problems. You know, how can I get curious about that state and include it more and more in my life in a sustainable, healthy, fashion um so that's the other one that samadhi is an out of reach state for ordinary people mm. these are great I, i'm inclined to ask if there's any more <laughs> if there's any more that comes to mind these are these are really juicy um another i mean another really obvious one is Meditation is stopping thinking. Yep, huge one. So, you know, meditation isn't obviously stopping thinking. There's a good chance if you practice for a long period of time, your thoughts will um, mellow out and subside to some degree. But in, let's just talk about initially when we're getting into meditation. It's here's, an, here's a really interesting thing the act of meditating promotes initially mental busyness like let's just say i was sitting here nice and calm talking to you and i i, I don't feel necessarily activated in my nervous system right now i feel pretty calm and good just having a chat but if i got straight off this call and laid down and went to bed there's a good chance me knowing myself that my leg would jump and my arm would flinch or, you know, I have a few little of these nervous system spasms as the, the energy we're, we're building this conversation that I have throughout this whole day um, makes its way out of my nervous system so I can get into that deep state of rest. 
So when we, when we sleep, we go through a process of dropping into sleep and then we go through rapid eye movement sleep. What's the purpose of that? The eyes are dancing around in the sockets to relieve the accumulated stress of the day or days. So then once the accumulated stress is released, we drop into an even deeper state of sleep. So in this sense, um, sleep promotes the excitation of accumulated stress. So meditation does the same thing where you sit down and you get really still. The stillness itself creates an atmosphere and an environment where all the things that have been locked go and start to move and dance and reorganize themselves in the body and mind's attempt to find homeostasis. It's like you pop the lid off the champagne bottle and all the bubbles go and come up. You know, over time, if we keep sitting, eventually the champagne will go flat and still. But meditation sometimes creates more thinking. So we have to understand that my job is not to stop thinking. It's to completely open to accept and allow the thinking. Where am I at right now? What's without any fight or struggle, what's genuinely happening in my experience now? Huh? Can I be okay with that and just completely allow it to be? Can I be aware of that with an atmosphere of non-resistance? And it's that inner atmosphere, the relationship to the mind that gives it the space to unpack itself. So it might eventually get a little more quiet, a little more quiet, a little more quiet. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. I, um, I remember a conversation we had during the meditation teacher training. I think we were talking about um, don't believe your thoughts. And I feel like you, you shared a story about your grandma and about a thought that you had would you would you be open to sharing that here <laughs> yeah yeah for sure so i think it's it's a really good it's a really good example for sure and I'll, I'll say one more thing to what i was just talking about as well when we say that um meditation isn't stopping thinking we we get we get to a, a state or a, a space and i'm sure you've experienced this where we do get to this beautiful experience through breathwork and meditation where there is just this profound silence and stillness mm -hmm. and we transcend thought and even then when we transcend thought we experience the place thoughts emerge from just like a wave emerges from the ocean, a beautiful, inspired, creative, spontaneous, very effective. Wow. Look at that beautiful thought. It feels like now in this state, I'm not regurgitating thought. I'm receiving thought. Mm. And even in that deep, deep state, there's thoughts, but it's a different experience of thought. The thoughts are highly functional and directly meet the need of the moment. Hmm. Even in that state, there's thoughts. But 
we get to choose what thought we bring into action. And it's that space that gives us the ability to not believe in our thoughts. I understand. I don't have to believe in a thought. The thought isn't reality. Why do I need to believe in it? It's functional or it's not. See, the, the, the fabric of our mind is woven together with beliefs. They are not reality. They're not real. No belief is true. We just need to ask, is the belief of service or not? And if not, what am I doing thinking it? What am I doing giving my attention to it? What am I doing reacting to it? What am I doing perpetuating it? What a waste of time. What belief is of service to my endeavours in this life? What belief is of service? So, yeah, we don't have to believe our thoughts. The, so I used to live at this this time, this story, 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 with my mom and my nan many years ago. And I was lucky I'd been meditating for some time at this stage. So I had a little bit of self-awareness. And um, it was one morning and just myself and my nan were home. And I went to make myself a cup of tea. And I heard my nan get up out of bed. She was, she loved to sleep in, mate. She, this was like 10 o'clock. I was probably on my third cup up by this point. <laughs> I was like, oh, the old girl's, the old girl's up. I hear her stirring. And I have this little moment. Should I make Nan a cup of tea? Should I? I'm like, go on, offer a cup of tea. You're, you're here making one anyway. So I already had this little bit of resistance to it. So I yelled out, hey, Nan. Yes, Dal. You want a cuppa? Oh, that'd be lovely. Thanks, Dal. And right as she said, that'd be lovely, thanks, Dal. This thought automatically comes up into my head. Ah, oh, fuck, when's she going to die? <laughs> <laughs> All your listeners are like, cancel this. What an evil bastard. <laughs> when's she going to die? And I saw this thought come up and move through my mind like a cloud going through the sky. And I looked up and I just cracked up laughing at myself <laughs> hysterical i'm like the logic of my mind says that rather than make nan a cup of tea i'd rather her die <laughs> <laughs> and i love my nan <laughs> and so i just i laughed and then realized um it's actually a joy to get to make nan a cup of tea and made her a cup of tea and got on with it, right? But what I what I noticed upon reflection on that really everyday, everyday moment is that what I previously would have done is maybe thought, oh, Michael, we can't have that thought. Or, oh, my God, what if someone knew I was thinking that? Push it down. Mm -hmm. Or, yeah, when is she going to die? She's just annoying. So all three of those variations are reactions to the thought. Mm -hmm. That's a bad thought. You know, they're all reactions to the thought. Whereas looking at it and laughing at it, there's this space like, I'm not the thought. Why do I have to defend it, react to it? Why do I have to do anything about it? And when there's the space between me and the thought, I get to actively choose now. What do I want to think? Not only what do I want to believe, not only, but 
would I actually, is it that big a deal to make Nan a cup of tea? Well, no. If I don't want to, I can say, you know what, Nan, make your own. I've got stuff to do, mm-hmm. which is cool too. Mm-hmm. And so the, the interesting thing about this little thought experiment is you, uh, Johnny Miller, are as creepy as the next man, <laughs> especially with that goatee and moustache. No, <laughs> so all your listeners, right? We're all perverted at times. We're all creepy. We're, we're imagine if someone like got unfiltered access to your thoughts for a day. Mm-hmm. Right. So we all have these crazy thoughts like, Oh fuck, when's she going to die? And whatever variation of that we have, mm-hmm. but the, the lesson in, or maybe the thoughts like um, about, I'm not worthy of that success or whatever it might be, or I can't get that partner their way to hop for me or way to fill in the blank. Those thoughts have really no power other than the meaning we ascribe to them and the reaction we place upon them. So what would it be like to just sit back and giggle? You know, I I see, uh, I, I can't see everyone who's listening to this, but I imagine when people hear that they would have, you know, either laughed or um, maybe thought, oh, that's horrible. And it's, <laughs> it's yeah. fun when that happens because I get to kind of say, you had a bigger reaction to my thought than I do. And it's my thought. <laughs> yeah, You know, and then I've, I've told this story before in a workshop and I think I went on to say, um, oh, by the way, don't worry. It worked. Um, and then finally died. And then people go, oh, again, I go, you still haven't learned. Look at you reacting to my thoughts. Where's your equanimity? <laughs> that's that's freaking fantastic. And um, yeah, I, I think that there's actually what comes to mind is is the role of, of like humor and comedy as well and, and, and lightness and like not taking ourselves too seriously. And, and actually, I mean, Honestly, I think that is what really resonates about your approach to a lot of this, because I, I think a lot of, um, you know, the kind of archetypal meditation teacher is old, maybe quite serious, speaks in a really slow voice. And I think there is something really refreshing, but also important for part of the work to, to have that approach of, of like levity and lightness and just humor and comedy. I think honestly, it like it feels to me like it's essential and you see people like the Dalai Lama and people like that and they're like in tears one moment and then in hysterics the next moment and it's yeah it's great and I I feel like for me that is another one of the kind of maybe misconceptions of people who are like okay I need to take this really seriously like I need to sit down and and meditate and it becomes another burden and so I love the the kind of storytelling comedy aspect that you that you bring to this as well amazing thanks man it's a pleasure (laughs) there was a stage when i was 19 where i wanted to be a stand-up comic so unfortunately or maybe fortunately i don't know for people who come to workshops these days some of my uh inner suppressed comedic (laughs) (laughs) comes out and i'm like like i just you know they're like my guinea pigs and i yeah all of that uh childhood desire comes out sometimes so it's good (laughs) <laughs> that's amazing um so i also wanted to ask you around or d- just also firstly to say that um 
I got so much from our meditation teacher training with 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 Lewis back in the day. And I'd love to hear what are some of the shifts that you've seen in this previous year of students that you've worked with as they've been through the the meditation teacher training. Uh, what are some of the kind of the the insights or the transformations that you've you've seen? Mm. Wow. I think a big one is less effort in life overall for more results and the word results varies depending on uh, the person that I'm thinking about some it might mean for some of the people it might be more more clients for some of the people it might be a deeper sense of ease it might be um, yeah more financial gain or a new partner or whatever less generally speaking what people marvel is going right back to the start of our conversation when they do inner work is how can I do less, more things work out. My, my um, ongoing curiosity in life, and I reckon you would have a similar one maybe, is it seems like not using surrender as a mental concept, but the more I actually surrender in life, the more things work out automatically. That's what seems that there seems to be this correlation for me personally, the more I surrender, the more things work out. And that's what I love. And so that's, that's a big part of the energy that comes through in the training. And so we see, see people starting to experience that. How can, and I can't necessarily answer it. It's just something people live. How can I be more relaxed, but be getting more done? How can I be more removed from the need around the process, but things are working out more efficiently? That, that's what excites me. The, the other thing with people in general is like letting go of mental or emotional habit patterns that they might have had for a long period of time. Um, a deeper sense of connection and grace to um, who and what they are and what their purpose is in this world. Um, better relationships with families is always a really big one. Mm -hmm. But the thing we really... Um, strive for is to have people feel confident to be able to teach mm -hmm. and um that's probably one of the things i'm most proud of with with the students this year that they are they're all willing and ready and capable very capable of sharing meditation in their communities whether it's online or in person or mm. yeah yeah it's a really 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 amazing journey to be a part of. Mm. And then it's just, there's so many, it's an interesting thing with meditation because the people who go through the training, a lot of the time, their family, their friends from the outside, they might not even be too aware of changes, but the person on the inside, they're just like the whole world's different. And then, yeah, to be able to have the tools to adapt the meditation practice to whatever they're going through in any given time in their own personal ongoing evolution, I think, is 
um, really cool as well. Yeah, beautiful. And um, yeah, just to, I guess, speak to that adaptability piece, I, I think something that I most appreciated about um, about the training was how personalized it was and how our role as teachers was almost like to, to craft almost like a chef in some ways and I know you have a background in cooking but it's almost like creating the perfect meditation recipe for for each person um, and, and I thought it's you know it became like a creative act writing and, and designing meditations and I, and I love that and and to the the surrender piece that you spoke to as well I remember my my kind of theme or my inquiry for that year was was this idea of, of the slipstream and I had this this image that I think we talked about of, of the turtle and how if the turtle tried to like swim across the Pacific Ocean, it get tired pretty quickly. But it, it was more like, how how can I tune in to these oceanic currents and find the slipstreams there to kind of be carried across and, and apply my effort to finding the slipstream as opposed to like frantically doing front crawl <laughs> and getting really tired. Mm. Yeah, amazing. That was, yeah. I think that um, that turtle turtle energy was was with us that whole whole year for sure. Yeah, yeah, that was a that was a really special time. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and and the the final thing that comes to mind is um, for listeners who you know might want or might be curious for like a practical application for some of these things we've been talking about. Um, I know that your your ease framework is something that that I've used a lot myself and I think is is super powerful. So maybe you could just share that briefly with with what it is and, and how it works. Oh yeah, it's it's probably um, my favorite practice. And not only because um, it is uh, if your listeners are like you, Johnny Miller. They're going to love anything with bullet points <laughs> and like a clear, a clear strategy. Just tell me what to do. <laughs> so it's that, but um, yeah, just the, the clarity of the framework is huge, but the, what, imagine if we had a technique where whenever someone is feeling any emotions, oh, here, do this, reconnect with ease. Whoa. Wouldn't that be handy? Well, we do. <laughs> I even, I even, I just had a, a memory to when we were doing the meditation teacher training with you, and one of your tasks or assessments was to teach ease back to me. Uh-huh. And I remember when you taught it back to me, I went, "Fuck, this is good." <laughs> I remember that, yeah. <laughs> so good. Wow. Yeah. The reason I love it is because it turns us all into alchemists. So whatever I'm experiencing right now, I can turn it into nourishment. I can take my emotional experience right now and understand that the very emotions that I feel have hidden within the center of them an opportunity for growth. Something that I can elicit and work with to further understand myself, to turn this thing that I thought was a challenge into self-knowledge. So, yeah, beautiful practice. It has two major purposes. The first one is um, if I feel a state of dis-ease or um, any kind of resistant emotion in my body, then it's going to help not only dissolve but bring further clarity around that experience. The second purpose is 
the same, but a different context where um, long-term meditators understand that the act and practice of meditation itself can often bring up um, subconscious material, big emotions. And so how do I be with and transcend those um, emotional experiences? So it's a, it's a practice that can be done on, on its own outside of meditation. And it's a practice that sits within the framework of a meditation uh, for those who have been practicing for a little while to the point where um, past experiences start to emerge to be cleansed and released. So the framework E's is an acronym, E-A-S-E. The first E stands for elicit. And um, what are we doing there? We are eliciting the emotion. So getting pungently clear on what I'm actually, actually experiencing right now, not distracting myself from it, not, um, not disengaging from it, um, not ignoring it. Let me get pungently clear with what I'm feeling right now. And so bring the emotion, elicit means to draw something out, to bring it to the forefront. The real advantage of eliciting the emotion is it takes us out of the head and the story about the emotion, whatever we've made up about it, who did it to us, what it's from, I shouldn't have it, should have it, whatever it might be, poor me, whatever, and just purely into the direct experience. So first we locate it in the body. What does elicitation mean? Where is it is in my body? Do I have um, some tension in my throat, uh, uh, heaviness in my abdomen, a uh, fluttering in my chest, a heat in my head? Like where do I feel the emotion in my body? Every emotion we have has a physical expression in the body. Where do I feel it? Every thought we have actually has an emotional ripple in the body that we can feel. Mm-hmm. So where do I actually feel it predominantly? Then let me explore it. Let me take myself right into it. Is it moving or is it still? Is it faster? Is it slow? Is it hot? Is it cold? Where's the perimeter of it? Like, for example, if I had tension in my belly, I don't feel any emotion in my left arm. So where does it start and stop? Like, where's the perimeter? So there's just this exploration of the feeling of it. No story, nothing. That's a full mindfulness exercise. So I'm out of the head. I'm in my body. I'm feeling. Then we move into the A, which is accept. Accept or allow. Oh, this is uncomfortable. I don't want to accept this. There's nowhere else you need to be. Just accept that right now, right here in this moment. This feeling is here and that's okay. So acceptance is the balm for resistance. Let me just be loving enough towards myself to drop all resistance and let the emotion be here exactly as it is. Not changing anything. Accept. Deepest acceptance. Nothing to change, nothing to do. And we move on to the yes, surrender. Oh, I love that word. Firstly, it's like acceptance on steroids. 
it's a complete cessation of fighting, like a giving up. This is where giving up is welcomed. It's the most glorious and effective thing you can do. Why fight reality when it's reality? There's two faces to surrender. The first face is the, uh, it's like a double-sided coin, the cessation of fighting. The acceptance and the surrender, that first face of surrender, create the availability for this other face of surrender, which is used more in the kind of a, a bhakti context, like the, 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 the loving aspect of surrender, which is I'm surrendering my perception of what I think this means. Because the reason I'm doing this ease is because I thought the emotion was negative. So I need to lose the resistance around it. And that was my initial whole thing. But now <laughs> I give up fighting and I actually surrender my perception about what this means. Not only that, I choose how I want to relate to it. I bow down and I touch the feet of this emotion, rendering it wholly. Mm. If you are here in my body right now, you are sacred. I see you as such. I melt. And normally at this stage, if I was guiding someone through this process, or if they're guiding themselves, they just feel a softening, a lightness, an opening. This thing that was contracted and dense opens. And that surrender is the perfect segue into the final E, which is inquire. Make an inquiry. Let me go right to the center and ask a powerful question. Sometimes it's nice to just ask whatever question spontaneously arises. Sometimes it's also nice to have one there, which might be, what's the learning from this emotion that I can take with me to move powerfully through the rest of my day? What's this emotion had a message for me? What would it be? And in that state, when you ask that question, something always arises. Sometimes it's disappointingly simple, but something always comes, mm. always comes. It might just be something like worry less or remember who you are. Or it might be something more case specific, like you don't have to think that thought about them. This is where your power is here, something like that. then all of a sudden we have this little nugget of insight that's been extracted authentically from us that we can bring up out of the meditation and move forward with into the rest of the, the day. In order to get to that place of learning, we have to create those fundamental steps of acceptance and surrender first, because if there's resistance present, we can't get to the place where the, solution is the problem and the solution exist in completely different states of being so we need a way to get from the problem into the solution even though the solution's there all the time 
Surrender puts us in a place where we don't need a solution, where we're no longer looking for it. And that's exactly where it's the right time to ask the question. Mm-hmm. I don't need it when I'm not looking for it. Emotions are messengers. And once the message has been delivered, the messenger is obsolete. Once you finally pay attention and understand what your body is trying to communicate to you, the messenger is no longer necessary. Now, if a postman brings a mail, gives you the letter, then you imagine if he just hung around. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing here, you creep? Yeah. <laughs> Drops the message off and then he's gone. Emotions, the emotions get as big as they need to until you finally pay attention. Mm-hmm. And once, once we, once we get it, once we understand, once we're humble enough to really listen to and learn from our own inner workings, yeah. We no longer need such uh, dramatic messengers. So E-A-S-E, um, elicit, accept, surrender, inquire. And, you know, if we can just remember that when we're feeling emotion, give it a go. And, um, you know, it's a beautiful framework. So, so easy to apply. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And it's, it's definitely something that I've used many, many times in my own life. And I, I like your, you kind of mentioned the words like holy and sacred in, in the place of S. And I almost feel like S could also be sacred to some degree. And, and I yeah. say that because I, especially when I began with this, I kind of came in with the over-efforting mindset of like, I'm going to, I'm going to, f- fucking do surrender so so hard i'm gonna (laughs) i'm gonna surrender so hard and there is that um like you said there's the two sides of it there's like the initial intention where there is still a trying and then at some point there is a kind of a letting go of the trying to let go um that is actually where like the obviously the the where you're trying to get to so i almost think of it as like trying or creating the conditions for that natural surrender to kind of arise to some degree and i think that i think there is an interesting subtlety there yeah 100 percent. yeah you're on the money for sure so surrender is a reward within itself you know it's 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 where the beauty lies for sure yeah mm. Beautiful. Well, um, I would love to just before we wrap up, I have a handful of rapid fire questions uh, to to send your way. Um, and then, yeah, and then we'll wrap up. So question number one, what is the thing that you forget for yourself at times and need to return to when life gets challenging? The thing I forget for myself. Um, probably that there's nothing I need to do right now. Mm. I forget that and think I need to do things and that the emphasis is on the word need. And then I return to a feeling of contentment 
satisfaction. And then I feel like I'm back where I belong, which is available to actually serve the need of the time because I'm no longer needy. Mm. Does, that, does that make sense? Totally. Yeah. Love it. Love it. So question number two, we didn't actually get to talk, to talk about him, but um, what is one lesson that you learned from Babaji? Oh, Babaji. Well, let's go with what we were just talking about. There's many. Let's go with what we're just talking about, which is we... Are the, the questions are rapid fire. Do the answers have to be rapid fire? No, no. Take, take your time. <laughs> when when uh, I remember one time I was hanging out with Babaji and um, we were entering a temple. He loved entering temples. Me and my friend used to be like, oh, fuck, another temple. <laughs> and when he would enter a temple, you know, he's in his, he's in his saffron robes and looking the part and, and he would get down on the ground and, and you know, bow down and touch the, the entryway. And then you go into the temple, whether it was a, a Shiva temple or a Ganesha temple in front of the altar and once again kind of lay on the ground and then do these like the whatever the symbolism is that he was taught by his guru to do and and one day we're walking to, to a temple and he before moving into the temple he did this laid down and um and he kind of looked at me afterwards and said why you not do i said oh it's you know i'm not religious or anything i don't really i'm happy to be in the temple but i'm not really feeling this whole lay on the ground pray to an elephant thing <laughs> and um and baba laughed and he he came over and he whispered in my ear and he, he said i'll tell you the secret and i said all right and he goes i'm not religious either <laughs> and he had this like real chuckle <laughs> you know people who have people who don't have experience of the field of consciousness can deeply misunderstand Hinduism and religion and any religion. But when you have experience of the field of consciousness directly, it transcends the idea of religion. Mm -hmm. So Baba was laughing. I'm not religious either, but he couldn't say that out loud to the fellow Indians because they'd be like, you're a fake Baba. Look at you. <laughs> Ron Rose, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said, he said, what's this elephant statue? What's this Shiva statue? <laughs> he said, I just use it as an opportunity to remember the beauty and grace of surrender. So I can get back in touch with the God within. It's just my opportunity. So come on, get down here with me. Mm. If every time we go to a temple, we are reminded of the beauty and grace of surrender. So be it. Let's do that. It's got nothing to do with Ganesha or Shiva. And so from then on in, I got down on the floor and used any of those opportunities as a point to just generate the feeling of surrender for the benefit of the beauty and grace it brought to my own life. Mm. So there was this idea that surrender is a reward within and of itself. Mm. I love it. That's, yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> um, so question three, what is the connection between meditation and creativity well great question 
highest form of creativity is life itself and what life is evolving into and becoming. And we all are players in that. Evolution is not separate from um, you. It's not something that you're subject to. It's something that you do. You evolve the whole. We all do. Sometimes it feels like we're disconnected from it and are just sitting back as the witness of evolution as life moves and evolves and changes and we're not quite in the flow of it. But how can I be a participant in and a driver of evolution? By visiting the place within your own consciousness where creativity emerges from. Meditation takes you to the origin of creation. In the origin of creation, you subtly, yet experientially feel what your role is in creation. From the meditative perspective, you are creation. You are the creator embodied so that you can have an experience of creating. Most people are creating by default, meaning they're just regurgitating the same experiences. Meditation gives you the capacity to create deliberately. What could my life be? What would I like my life to look like? What is my role in the evolution of the human race? I'm going to create that. Meditation takes you to the source of creativity. Not only in terms of doing an artwork, but in terms of the evolution of fucking life. Mm. Mm. Beautiful. And that's a, a fantastic segue to the final question, which is what have you learned from your first few years of fatherhood? <laughs> Just two years. You turned two the other day. Okay, cool, cool. I, I, yeah. Oh, I just felt my heart explode. Hmm. I've, I've learned a love that I did not know was possible. Hmm. I, yeah. He's the funniest little dude I've ever met. He's just hilarious. Um, patience <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah oh man how to operate with less sleep <laughs> <laughs> um And I've also learnt more about boundaries mm. and that they are the foundation of healthy, clear boundaries are the foundation of safety and love mm. and security. Mm. Uh, mm. That's, been really, that's been really cool to see, see it play out. Um, 
and yeah, the importance of sticking to as parents sticking to our word. So being really not, not doing stupid, unnecessary rules for, you know, just because for whatever silly reason that I know my parents were like, and Hannah's as well, but really being careful with what we say, but if we say it, mean it, and that's it. And seeing the way now the responds to that is just being so enlightening. Mm. You know, we get, we get our, um, his grandparents, another family member saying, wow, how's when you take that thing off him? He doesn't have a tantrum or he's just, he's so, he's so great. Maybe it'll change now that he's coming into what people call the terrible twos. I'm going to call them terrific twos. Hmm. But, um, but yeah, I've really learned about the consistency of, of the word, but then also picking what you say really deliberately because of that. Hmm. But mostly, mostly just the love is just, it's something else. Mm. Beautiful. Well, this has been, man, this has been such a, such a pleasure. Um, thank you. Thank you so much. Right. My, yeah, my absolute joy. It really, really has been fun. So thank you so much. And for all that you do, I really appreciate you. Huh. Where could, um, where could curious listeners find out more about both you and your writing and, and also any upcoming trainings that you're going to be offering? The best place is probably just through Instagram, um, I'd say, which cool. is King's Meditation and Mentoring. Cool. And um, that's the easiest, easiest spot. Then there's, there's links where you can follow to get to all of the other stuff. Um, starting next, next February, we have our um, 2022 Meditation Teacher Training kicking off and that'll go through the duration of the rest of the year which can be it's um it's a course that it's not intensive it's it's a slow um very accessible course to do alongside a busy life Mm -hmm. um so it goes throughout the yeah throughout the year um yeah, starting in February for 10 months. Amazing. Well, I will include a link to all of that in the show notes as well. So if you're listening to this, you can check out the link below. Um, okay, well, I love to I love to close with this, this line from Rilke. And he said, try to love the questions themselves and live them now. Perhaps you will then gradually live your way into the answer. And with that in mind, what is what is the question that is most alive in your heart right now? And what question might you leave our listeners with? The question that's alive in my heart right now is how can I serve? And question I would leave your listeners with is how can I get to a place of questionlessness? <laughs> what's the most that's conscious effort how can I arrive where the questions dissolve and the experience is had okay we will wrap the show with that thank you thank you so much my pleasure mate thank you so much for having me really appreciate it you I hope you enjoyed this conversation 
It would mean a lot to me if you could take a few seconds to open up your podcast app and give Curious Humans a shiny five-star rating. This not only helps more people to find it, but it will help me to get more awesome guests in the future. And if you're not already subscribed, then the Curious Humans newsletter is where I share monthly morsels of interestingness and podcast updates. You can sign up for that at johnny.life. That's J-O-N-N-Y dot life.